Welcome to the Silver Screen Guide Podcast. Join Corbin and Alan, along with guest hosts, as they bring their love for the cinema to discuss films from every genre and decade. Learn about the history of the film, little-known facts, and insightful explorations while they enjoy discussing your favorite film. The curtain is rising and your podcast is starting. So sit back, relax, and enjoy your guide to the silver screen. Welcome back, listeners, to the sixth installment in our Denis Villeneuve movie review series. Today we are reviewing Enemy. This is your co-host, Corbin. And I'm Alan. It has been a few weeks since our last Denis Villeneuve review, and actually our last review was a re-release of Prisoners with a brand new introduction. That review was free for the very first time, so if you haven't heard our original and new thoughts over Prisoners, go ahead and check out check that out. We did just finish reviewing all four Candyman films, including the brand new theatrical one, Definitely go ahead and check out those reviews. We had a lot of uh, interesting discussions over those movies. While you're at it, make sure to look in the description below. We've got timestamps, links to um, all of our podcast pages, our social media pages, Alan and I's um, letterbox profiles, and a ton of other great content down there you will not want to miss out on. Alan, so in our background, in our guide to Enemy, we talked about how this movie came out in a total of about 120 theaters. I know I wasn't there at the theater. You didn't see this in theaters, right? No, no. The first time I watched this, I think I think we were over. I was over at your house when we when I watched this for the oh, first yes, time. That's right. I always knew about this movie. I, I I forget how long I knew about it after it came out, but I remember always hearing about it. But never actually watching it. I remember hearing very good things. And I think we've, we've, you said, I want to show this movie to you and we watched it at your house. And that was when I finally was able to see it. I, it was a number of years ago. So I remember that now, thanks to the magic of Letterboxd. I have checked all the times I've logged this movie. Um, the first time that I watched it was January 13th, 2016. So it's been five and a half years since I first saw this movie. The second time was with you. Um, funny enough, August 3rd, 2018. So to the day, almost, um, well, I guess we're reviewing this in August. You're hearing this review in September listeners, but mm -hmm. when I actually watched this, um, to the day, it's been about three years since I've seen this movie. So this is actually my third time seeing it. Um, Alan, how many times have you seen this movie? I watched it once with you. I think I was going to watch it again after that. Uh, but never actually got around to doing it. But I did watch it twice for this review. So I've technically seen it as many times as you have. Um, but I watched, so I watched it once with you and then three years passed until we're re reviewing it now. So I have seen it technically three times, but this would be my second, I guess, uh, time frame of watching mm -hmm. it. Yeah. I remember the first time we watched it together, I showed it to you edited on VidAngel. It had a, it had all of the nudity filtered out, I remember. And then I right. remember after we watched it, you're like, I liked it, but I was confused on some stuff. I'm like, well, there was this scene that was cut out. And you're like, well, that would have like, that would have changed my perspective on the film. That would have helped if I would have known that. So 
As we've discussed in previous Denis films, there has been nudity in those as well. The French, he's French-Canadian, they don't quite shy away from the nudity as much as American directors and American audiences do. So take that into perspective here with the review. But just a heads up, if you're going to go pop on the movie right now, just, just be warned, it deals with some heavy subject matters. Alan, I'm curious, if you did see this trailer back in 2013 2014 would they would you try and go seek this out if if at all possible at the movie theaters or at the very least would you go to a video on demand and rent the film if i had seen previous denis films um i absolutely i would try to, to get my hands on a copy or get to a theater or find some way to watch enemy if i had been a denis fan if not I don't know if I would seek this one out too much. I guess I would think I would hold off until I had heard something about it uh, and then go off of that. So I think from the trailer, no, coming in with the pre-knowledge that it's Denis, seeing the trailer, I'm very intrigued. If I hadn't known about Denis, if it wasn't Denis or if I hadn't seen his previous works, um, then seeing the trailer, I would be a little bit skeptical um, because I feel like this is somewhat of a cliche idea, you know, the evil version of yourself, your evil twin, that kind of a thing. I don't know if it would necessarily pique my interest if I didn't have the pre-knowledge of Denis, but it is still interesting nonetheless. I had only seen Prisoners. I saw it a week and never release. You'll go back and listen to our review. You hear my thoughts on that. I didn't connect Denis with this movie really when I saw it in uh, back in 2016. I really didn't know who Denis was, so I would say if I had seen his previous films like I had now, then absolutely I'd be very fascinated to go and see this movie. But if I just saw the trailer, yeah, it does look a little like, well... I've kind of seen this before a little Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde here doppelganger stuff going mm -hmm. on. You know, I am glad I didn't see the trailer beforehand, but it is a very good trailer for a movie. I would want to see the latter half of the trailer does make the movie look more of an intense thriller than it actually is. So I don't like that. Yeah. I think it kind of misrepresents parts of the film, but nevertheless, this trailer would get me to go see the movie. All right, listeners, well, if you have not seen Enemy and you don't want the film spoiled for you, I highly recommend you don't have Enemy spoiled for you. I highly recommend you check it out beforehand. It still may be on streaming. I know it was when I saw it, so it it is on Blu-ray also. It is available for you to check out. So Enemy, you can watch it on Hulu, Amazon Prime, I think a few other platforms, so long as you have a subscription to Showtime. Seems to be the same thing for all of them. So um, I guess if you have a subscription to Showtime, you have free access to this. Mm -hmm. uh, if not, I I don't think it's streaming anywhere else for like on Netflix or anything. I, I don't think it's there. So our story opens on a few vignettes. The voicemail of mother played by Isabel Rossellini explaining to her son. It was nice to see his new apartment, but asking how can he live like that while he sits in his car as the camera pans over the city. A pregnant woman looking back at us, a title card reading Chaos is Order Yet Undeciphered, and most troubling of all, a group of men, including Anthony, played by Jake Gyllenhaal, watching naked women do things with spiders. 
We now focus on one of our main characters, Adam, also played by Jake Gyllenhaal. He's a professor who teaches about control, about dictators, and the patterns that repeat throughout history. As we go through his day, we see his unsatisfaction with life and his girlfriend, played by Melanie Laurent. One day, a co-worker recommends the movie, where there's a will, there's a way, when Adam says he could go for something cheerful. That night, he watches the movie, only to realize while waking up in the middle of the night that he's in the movie. He learns his twin is played by Daniel St. Clair. He even realizes he might have a picture of the man torn up in his moving boxes. At the Vogel Talent Agency, the security guard recognizes him as Anthony, Daniel's real name. He gives him a piece of his mail containing the doppelganger's address. He finds the apartment located next to twin helix-shaped buildings. He calls his apartment, which is answered by his wife Helen, played by Sarah Gadden, who just by his voice believes him to be Anthony. Adam finally gets Anthony on the phone. He goes to talk with him in his bathroom. He tells him his name is Adam Bell. At Anthony's apartment, he is in the bathroom talking as well, telling him to never call again. Helen believes he's lying to her, that he's seeing her again. He storms out. Later that night, he researches Adam. The next day, Adam receives a call from Anthony to meet at the Breezeway Inn on Sunday at 1 p.m. Helen travels to the university where Adam teaches, only to be dumbfounded by the situation. She briefly interacts with Adam, but when he goes back inside to teach his class, she calls her husband to confirm that wasn't him. Later that night, Helen cries to her husband asking what's happening. When he replies, I don't know, she responds, I think you do. Back at Adam's apartment, he dreams of a naked woman with a spider for a head as he walks upside down on the ceiling. Later that day, he meets Anthony at the hotel, but when they both realize they have the same scar on their chest, Adam backs out realizing he made a big mistake by coming there. Anthony finds where Adam lives, going so far as to follow his girlfriend. He checks her out on the public bus, noticing she's wearing heels, which causes him to have a gleeful reaction. Adam, or Anthony, it's not confirmed which, visits his mother, who tells him, you shouldn't meet strange men alone in hotel rooms since you have enough trouble sticking with one woman, and that he should quit that fantasy of being a third-rate movie actor. She confirms he's her only son. Meanwhile, Anthony concocts a diabolical plan to pretend to be Adam to take his girlfriend on a romantic getaway. Before confronting Adam, he rehearses an accusation that goes, since Adam brought his wife into this, Anthony will repay him in kind and then disappear from his life forever. Adam agrees. The two switch places. Adam goes to Anthony's apartment where he meets the security guard, who tells him he can't get the other knight out of his head. He has to go back. He needs to go back, but the locks have been changed and new keys sent out. Adam realizes Anthony had a framed picture of the one Adam had torn in half. Later, Adam apprehensively goes to bed with Helen when she asks him if he had a good day at school. Meanwhile, Anthony is fornicating with Mary when she realizes he has a ring mark on his finger. Adam wakes up to go cry in the living room, and Anthony and Mary fight in the car while the two back at the apartment become intimate. Anthony and Mary crash their car, seemingly dying. The next morning, Adam puts on one of Anthony's suit coats where he finds the letter he got from Volga, but gave back to Anthony at the hotel room. 
As Helen gets out of the shower and walks into her bedroom, he asks her if she's busy, with the dark realization he has to go out tonight. But when she doesn't respond, he finds a gigantic spider in place of her as credits roll. So, w- one of the big aspects of this movie is, uh, it's it's kind of hard to explain uh, what I'm about to say, but it's very broad. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. What I mean by very broad, I mean that it's a movie that has a lot of elements to it that can be taken several different ways, and this movie can be read several different ways. Mm-hmm. So... The way that you might see it, Corbin, and the way that I might see it might be vastly different. Yeah. Uh, because it's, again, this movie that's just kind of, there's a lot to it that don't have many explanations. And we just doesn't explain a lot of things. It's very much a film where it like, kind of lets you lead, uh, not lead, it kind of lets you just draw your own conclusions at the end of the day. Uh, and that's, from what I picked up, that's kind of what Denis was going for, was a film where the audience member can take what they need to from it to pull together uh, the story at the end of the day, what this film was ultimately about. And it kind of reminds me a little bit of David Lynch. I, I know I know we mentioned it in the background, but this feels, this idea feels very Lynchian to me where it's just this very strange world that's crafted and lets the audience kind of pull the pieces back together and make it make sense to them. Make, their interpretation of the film might be correct so long as somebody else's interpretation, which might be vastly different, might also be correct. And honestly, that's what I love about this film is that there is so much to read into it, whereas anyone's mm-hmm. interpretation really could be right or wrong. It's really up to the individual. I love movies like that. I would say in terms of probably thematic elements now as far as just ambiguity goes pick any david lynch film but as far as thematic elements go this one does seem similar to blue velvet in certain ways but also i'm just thinking of films like 2001 a space odyssey which i've done a video explaining that uh explaining that movie and that caused a big discussion in the comments that was great to have so many people comment and discuss their own thoughts on that film but movies like that where They're very meaty, they're very deep, but once you walk out, you don't quite know what you saw, and it's going to take repeat viewings to watch this movie. So, I think for that fact, this movie's probably not for everyone because um, it's quite ambiguous, it's quite allegorical, but for those that love to delve into storytelling, this is one for them, and you're right. Um, I know Isabella Rossellini came to Denny and asked him just straight out to basically say, okay, so what is this about? Like, who's right? Who's wrong? And he said, let's just let ambiguity, you know, reign supreme throughout the story. He said, let's let ambiguity just take over with everything and not come Mm -hmm. to any firm conclusions on any of the outcomes of this film. And I'm really glad about that. I'm also, I'm also thinking back to Memento. In many ways as well. Yeah, I know that on the Wikipedia page, they have uh, one critic say that this is essentially uh, the memento, more or less, uh, for Mm. Denis. Mm -hmm. He compared it to uh, Christopher Nolan's memento. And I would agree, there are some similar, there are a lot of similarities between the two of them where, you know, memento is not necessarily as ambiguous as this, not by a long shot. But they do have similar feelings to them where they feel, you know, somewhat like 
this is almost as if it's the director's peak at the point at this point, right? Um, now, when it comes to uh, when it comes to this film specifically and its ambiguity, I know one of the things that uh, Denis really wanted to keep like the most hidden was that of the answer of what in the world are these spiders, mm. right? What, what do they mean in this film? What's the meaning of these spiders? And to this day, as far as I know, he has never come out and said, you know, what they actually mean. And I, and I think neither has the rest of the cast. They come up with theories and ideas. And now a lot of people seem to think that the spiders represent the women in these two characters' lives. But as for a definitive answer on the spiders and what they mean, as far as I know, Denise never come out and said that and has very much been on the side of, I'm not going to explain it, find your own conclusion. I'm, I'm glad he hasn't explained it. I don't want to. I mean, he can have his own opinion about it and I would be perfectly fine with me. That wouldn't change my viewpoint on mm. it. So there is a lot of, I would say a lot of allegorical elements or symbolic elements that we could read into this film. I'm really eager to get into that. Do you want to start with the spiders, Alan, or should we kind of uh, save the spider for last? Let, I'd say let's probably save him for last. Okay. Because that's kind of the most... Uh, uh, it's the biggest one. Ambiguous element, I would say, the yeah. film. Yeah, well... No. Okay. So I'm going to start, I'm going to start by here. I'm going to immediately throw down the hammer and say that there is only one main character. He just has two, either two different personalities or a different personality living within his head. And a lot of the things we see with the other one are really just inside of his mind. What do you think, Alan? Is, is there actually an Anthony and an Adam or is it just one person? See, originally I thought that there really were two different people, two physical different beings of Anthony and Adam. Um, and I think that there is most definitely an argument for that. I mean, we're already living in a world where uh, giant tarantulas are all of a sudden turning into women, right? That That happens a couple of times in this movie. So it's not like, you know, you can't argue either way and that be the correct answer like we've been mm -hmm. saying. I want to say I'm kind of with you. I think that there's one character that has, I guess my reading, and this kind of gets into my reading of the Anthony and Adam's character. Adam is who this one character really is. Anthony is who he wishes he could be in some ways. Um, or what I guess the alternative side of him would be, and then he falls into that as the film goes on. So I, I, think, I'm, I think I'm on the same page as you that there's, I think that there's like one person in this film, but two split personalities that we're seeing when the story plays out. Yes, I would agree. I think there is something to be noticed here with the naming as well. They both have A names, first of all, mm -hmm. that one's pretty obvious. But more importantly, Adam, Adam was the first man from the Bible, but Adam was not the same after the fall. He was a essentially a different man after that. So I think there is something kind of biblical to be read into the naming of this character as well. Um, also, um, the woman that he is his girlfriend, her name is Mary. That's also a biblical name also. So I'm looking at some of those allegorical elements there. What makes me think that there's only one person is the mother confirms you are my only son. 
And I see the torn picture as a sign of a psychotic break, that he is literally torn from his past. I think what gets very interesting, though, is that his two kind of different identities begin to intermingle. Because as Anthony, he is kind of this hotshot actor, but as Adam, he is somewhat of a bachelor with this kind of girlfriend that they live in girlfriend, you know, they live together, but they're not really married or anything. So in some ways, you would think that's kind of what Anthony wants, but it's also, but it's what Adam has. So the need does play with kind of mixing up these stories as well, where it's almost like these two identities become jealous of each other, where Adam seems to want a little bit more liveliness to his life, a little bit more stability, whereas Anthony wants to be more reckless. Uh, I find that interesting how these stories kind of um, start to mix each other up. Yeah, and there are a lot of scenes too where Denis like, deliberately makes it ambiguous as to which character we're seeing. Oh, yeah. Is it Anthony or is it Adam? I would say the greatest example of this is, when, is with mm -hmm. the mom. It's not... There's never a definitive answer as to whether or not it's Anthony or Adam in the room. It, it honestly, it could be both of them. Uh, and I think that the scene is deliberately written to be that way, where it's whether or not it is one or the other. It doesn't necessarily matter if it's one or the other. It honestly is both of them. That scene happens to both of them, right? Whether or not, and that there are still can be arguments from that saying that, well, they're both the, they're, they're both two different characters. I think that there still can be arguments against that. But I think, what Denis is going for here is he's, you know, he's clearly trying to blur the lines between, you know, whether or not a scene has Anthony or it has Adam. Uh, we don't know which one it could be. Again, the greatest example of that is that mom scene, which kind of brings credence to the fact that, you know, they are two of the same character. Uh, they're two different, I guess, sides of the same coin in this instance. Mm -hmm. And I know that one of the big elements of this film is that of the duality of man, right? As good as a man is, they are also equally bad. Um, so I think that, you know, it's clearly an element here. Uh, so I think that, you know, having these two characters being as two sides of the same coin sends down the rabbit hole of, well, which character are we really seeing in a lot of these scenes? Even though it may come out and say that oh anthony has a wife uh but she also says were you seeing her again perhaps as a reference to mary the girl we see from the beginning um it's very ambiguous in a lot of these scenes it really makes it makes the waters a lot more muddier in my eyes yeah there definitely is a duality of man aspect here where these two men have opposite interests one is more interested in the arts whereas the other one is more interested in history and doesn't like movies the other one wants to be a movie actor um you know one is getting ready to settle down the other one leaves more of a bachelor life i would even say anthony seems to be more athletic where adam seems to be a little bit more schlubby doesn't take as much care of himself doesn't take the pride so they do a good job of really splitting that character apart until at certain weird intersections they start to interweave um, I think going off of that duality aspect, I think the apartment, um, Adam's apartment could be read in two different ways. I'm, I think likely the apartment is real. I think Adam or Anthony, whoever you want to call him, I think he does have a separate apartment. The mom seems to confirm this on the voicemail when she says, 
Thank you for showing me your new place, but how can you live like that? It's really bare, it's really dingy, but I do think it's also a representation of his mind. He does have a fairly bare and depraved mind, and the only thing that lives there is he seems to kind of distract himself with his work. He seems to be very bored and tedious, but he also has his girlfriend there, and the only thing they do there is have sex. And so I think in some ways... Right. That is just a representation of when he doesn't want to live in reality, he goes to have fantasies in kind of this bachelor pad high rise overlooking Toronto. Right. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think this is definitely more of the reflection. His apartment is definitely a reflection of his mind. And in this opening scene, it's set pretty early on that when it comes to Adam, his life is very repetitive. Mm -hmm. There is a lot of elements to his life that are very much the same every single day. He goes to work, he teaches, I think about history, um, right. and specifically on what we see, he teaches about control mm -hmm. and how uh, dictators will manipulate the system and manipulate what happens with the people to gain that control. Um, then he goes back home, he does grading on assignments and then has sex with his girlfriend who <laughs> may or may not leave mad at him later in the night. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's very repetitive and it, it's, it sets up really early on that Adam's life is very much one that is for it to him kind of undesirable. It's very much a, a life that almost like it's bearing down on him because we always see him kind of hunched over like he's like he's carrying some kind of weight. Yeah. And so I think that also just helps lead his character into getting really surprised and curious and also at the same time terrified when he finds this actor who is exactly like him uh, physically or in terms of his looks. He, go, he goes on the rabbit hole of trying to find the character of Anthony and he keeps going down this rabbit hole because the more I get, I think maybe the more he finds out about his life, the more he wants to become him. Um, and the more he dives deeper into trying to find out more about him, uh, despite him not wanting to do that, uh, it makes for a very interesting main character because I think Adam is, if they're two sides of the same coin, Adam is the side that we're focused on the most. Anthony is here. He's very much on the opposite end of the coin, um, clearly, but Adam is our main lead going into this film and the character we follow throughout the rest of it, which to me, the way that set up his character makes for a very interesting character because he is one that is looking for a lot more, it seems like, when we meet him. Yeah, and even going back to the beginning of the movie, there is a duality in there as well, or even another layer. It opens with the city where he has to seemingly find his place. He seems to really be struggling to find any kind of place. Is he a professor? Is he an actor? What does he want to do with his life? But then he's also presented with two things. Um, he's presented with his wife, which we briefly see, um, who is topless, which I believe Denis did on purpose because he's trying to show a different sort of beauty, even though she's pregnant, he's trying to show her as still beautiful and attractive in a different way. And then it goes to this mm -hmm. really kind of dark, seedy, kind of sexual, weird dungeon place where there are these other naked women doing strange things. And Anthony, the way the scene cuts off, if you'll pay attention, the way the scene cuts off is him putting his fingers kind of in a spider web across his face. And then his eyes seem to get drowsy, which leads me to believe that the opening of the film very well could be 
either his thoughts, it could be a dream. Oftentimes throughout the film, um, it'll be one of the characters waking up in the middle of the night. Most, most often it's Adam waking up, which leads me to believe that Anthony is somewhat of this alternate persona. Um, that's where he goes in his dreams. So right off the bat in the beginning of the movie, we get to see the most important things in his lives, but we also get to see the struggle. And then, um, the mom doesn't get much play in this movie, but she does seem to, um, we don't know what apartment she's talking about. What if she's talking about the one where his wife lives and she doesn't approve of his wife? Or maybe she thinks, uh, cause clearly she's pretty wealthy. She's this wealthy artist living in this really nice place. What if she's talking about that? So there is that third, um, you know, counterweight as well, this third pull of the mother. I know the, um, actress that plays, um, the girlfriend, she believes the spider to represent the mother and the mother is just kind of all controlling and domineering in her son's life, which is which is interesting. I don't think that's the case. That's just an interesting take from her. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I th I know that that was on the Blu-ray um, where the th one, one theory was that mom was the spider. I I'm with you. I don't think I necessarily see that. I don't see it because the mom is there, but only in like a couple of scenes. Um, it doesn't feel like she has all her hand in the bit, this big pie of a movie, uh, very much. She's definitely an important character, but not one that I feel is the controlling element of the story. Um, I do kind of want to get into the, the women of this mm -hmm. movie because they are clearly an important aspect because, uh, outside of these two characters, Anthony and Adam wanting to know more about each other's lives and pursuing each other the women in their lives are very much the same way uh, because they have very similar lives just in different areas, uh, Anthony and Adam do. What's interesting to me is um, Mary? That's the girlfriend's name, right? Yeah. What's interesting to me is Mary in this film is pretty much only objectified. Uh, there really isn't, the movie never actually takes the time to like desire, it only spends time uh, treating her like an object, it feels oh, yeah. like. The first time we meet her, she's having sex with Jake Gyllenhaal. Mm -hmm. um, and that's like the total opening of this film. And then when it gets into it later, when Anthony starts to pursue her, he's then again ogling her uh, her womanly features, I guess. He's ogling her legs and that kind of a thing and decides that he wants to take her out and he takes her to a hotel room. Uh, that's like, it seems to be an interesting aspect is the character of Mary is only objectified in this film where Helen is not quite that same way. Uh, Helen is pregnant, for one, um, which is also an interesting aspect, but almost as if the movie is trying not to do that same thing with her, like actively trying to go away from objectifying the character of Helen in times. Mm -hmm. I think that's very, very interesting where it's kind of opposite where the character who, uh, the character of Anthony who has participation in this weird ring in the beginning uh, is pursuing a different woman who's where his wife is not quite objectified. I think that's very interesting. Yeah, you're exactly right. Um, Mary is objectified, whereas Helen is, uh, our main character is always trying to escape from her. So the women are either sex objects or they're anchors that are just, you know, going to tie our lead down to, you know, a domestic life that he's not quite sure that he seems to want or at least um 
or at least Helen doesn't seem she he wants that. I don't believe that mm. Mary is real. I'm going to say that Mary is not real. I'm going to say she is just a sexual figment of his imagination. She is just what he wishes he could be doing. Whenever he thinks about her, it's primarily always thinking about having sex with her, or it's always her desiring him. And there is also some insecurity built into this fantasy, it seems like, because when Adam watches after Adam watches the movie, he gets really aggressive with Mary and then she rebuffs him and goes away. So there is that um, insecurity tied into that as well. And uh, I will say that men who fall into some kind of sexual addiction, they do ultimately take on a narcissistic power fantasy role in their minds where they will think of scenarios that, you know, put them in these types of positions that we're seeing here in the movie. And so I, I, I do find it very fascinating how the women are treated because I think, I think our main character sees um, Helen more so as a nag and Mary more so just as this object. But ultimately Mary, um, when she finds out about the ring and marriage, she rebels against that mindset. And I think that's just a rebellion in his mind. It's a conflict in his mind. Um, but yeah, it's very interesting how the movie treats the women in this and then of course we haven't talked about the the women in the beginning the nameless naked women <laughs> yeah that's 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 true yeah that's true so i do think it's possible but also not possible that the sex dungeon is real considering the security guard spoke about it unless the guard is another figment who manifests as a literal guard who could be seen as his conscience either pulling him towards sin when he's dressed in black in the beginning or letting him back into his normal life, holding the key and dressed in white. So I think that the women in the beginning, I think it is very possible that it's real. I'm more so going to land on the fact that it's not real, considering the spider brings it into more of a surreal atmosphere that just doesn't make any sense. For me, the the weird dungeon at the beginning is kind of like the precipice of control, maybe, where the character of Anthony has, it's very much in, it feels like he's very much in control of a lot of this movie when he is introduced into it, uh, especially when he starts getting into the life of Adam. It feels like he's like in control for a good chunk of it, and uh, he takes over Adam's life at the very end of the story. Um, so when, when we see him, in this weird dungeon area, uh, it almost feels like, you know, now that he is in control, he now has kind of fallen into this, you know, this horrible thing, right? Um, with a bunch of other men, you know, they could, maybe they could have their own separate story, very similar to this kind of a thing. Um, but it's also interesting that a Anthony is also the one that dies in the end where Adam takes his place. So I think, for me, it's more, I think it can be taken either way, that it is a literal place that exists or it is a place that is more of a metaphor. I, for me, I think maybe it's more of a metaphor on the side of once you reach this level of control, like with Anthony, you kind of go down this bad path in this, in this world where now that you've had control over something that... Uh, maybe isn't the greatest thing to have control over, which in this case, maybe it's sex, then, you know, you go down this metaphorical path and you find yourself in somewhat of a dungeon of sorts um, where they bring in a spider 
that almost plays out as if it's somewhat of a threat. Uh, maybe, but that's kind of what I'm thinking of it in my mind. It does show the extent of his depravity, whether it is literal or figurative. If it's literal, then this is a really mm -hmm. dark, evil place that he seems to want to be a part of. And if it is figurative, the fact that there is other men there does make it strange. But in some ways, I don't really see it as strange. I think it's showing a representation that all men can fall prey to this kind of depravity of all ages, races, economic classes, whatever. Because the security guard is there who clearly doesn't make as much money as Anthony, who is maybe a college professor, maybe he's just a third-rate movie actor. It's just people from all different walks of life are participating in this very seedy, you know, uh, voyeuristic, you know, acts over here. It does definitely work on a figurative level that, you know, this is the dark secret that he's tucked away. This is where he goes when he doesn't want to be with his wife. He either literally goes there or he goes there in his mind. I mean, it's honestly, the answer is both. Even if he's not there, it's probably what he's thinking about. That's why you see him preying upon um, Mary later on. His idea of a romantic getaway is to take her to some seedy hotel, which very well may be the Breezeway Inn, which is where he tried to give the key back to himself earlier on, which, and I see that scene as him trying to, you know, get rid of or disassociate himself with his, you know, evil desires, nonetheless. Uh, the other couple other quick things I wanted to bring up. Um, I do think there's a possibility he's never, he never even starred in where there's a will, there's a way. Uh, you think his coworker might have realized that. I think there is a possibility that um, this is just another fantasy of his. His mom says you're just a third rate actor. Um, I think this is could just be a, something he conjured in his mind to jog his subconscious into um, creating this entire confrontation. Um, you also do notice the professor becomes the aggressor with a girlfriend after seeing himself in the movie, which I think goes along more so with the power fantasy. Um, some other things I also noticed right. in the background was um, the baby's room that is set up. There is a pull-up bar in the doorframe, which leads me to believe that the baby's room used to be his, um, probably his workout room. And now he is having to seed part of his life to the baby and give up that as well right yeah they're very much i think you mentioned this a little bit ago where you know now it feels like well when helen became pregnant you know that kind of was a wake-up call to anthony where he seemed to have some kind of maybe some kind of control and now with his wife pregnant it's gonna be a bit different now and maybe that has something to do with it where that pull-up bar is what you know where he used to work out now he can't do that anymore he's got a kid coming on the way so he has he can't do that he can't do the same thing in his own house like he's losing control over the life that he has mm -hmm. um so he's wanting to find something more and that's when adam comes in and for him for the character of anthony you know he sees that as his opportunity to you know control and to control adam's life and to kind of do what he wants because he can't do that same thing in his own life. Uh, whereas Adam is, you know, 
coming in from his life is so monotonous that he can't stand it and it's bearing down on him that he finds out something extraordinary and although he's repelled by it he kind of wants to keep going into it and understand like what in the world is this all about and dive deeper in, until he essentially becomes anthony um so I, those are definitely some interesting aspects to it where y you know you have two characters who are wanting to control things in different ways but they go about it of course in two different ways um and in terms of anthony the way that he goes about it is death leads to his death whereas adam goes about it and it leads to him basically becoming the character of anthony i do find that ironic though the repetition that you just brought up of these characters where adam does it does mm -hmm. showcase his repetitious life but the interesting aspect is anthony wants a repetition as well he just wants a repetition of the different kind and you even see the guard saying um, the security guard at the thing, I have to go back, I need to go back, which of course is going to create an infinite indestructible loop. And Anthony also has a desire, a repetitious desire to either cheat on his wife, to go be to go participate in illicit activities. That is a repetition. That's that's kind of the definition of insanity is repeating the same thing, but always expecting different results. And that is something right. to do with real life when you know people do fall into a sexual addiction they will continually repeat the process always chasing a new high always chasing those endorphins in the brain or whatever trying to achieve what they just you know physically can't anymore um that's where i find at towards the end of the movie when anthony says after tonight you'll never see me again this is something what people with addictions tell themselves is one last drink, one last thing, and then I'm done. And of course, that never happens. Right. So that's the way I saw it is him reasoning with himself in his mind that um, at the end of this night, I will have one last affair and then I promise I'll be faithful to my wife. That scene is very, very interesting, though, because while... um uh, Anthony and Mary are fornicating in the very middle of that scene Adam wakes up he wakes up in the middle of that scene goes out to the living room and begins crying he then becomes intimate with his wife and while he's becoming intimate with his wife Anthony and Mary have this huge blow up argument and they crash and die which seems to solidify right. in my mind that that is all just either a dream, his subconscious desires, his imagination, and that he believes that's um, hidden side of his life, which isn't so hidden. His wife knows and um, his mom knows about his extramarital affairs that to me, the crash signifies that that side of himself has come to an end until we get to the very final scene of the movie, which we'll talk about in a minute. Right, no, yeah, that's a, that's a good point. That's a good point because if we're going down the, you know, the route of this is a story of addiction, like you were saying, um, having that side of his life die, but in reality, it still kind of lives on even though he tried to kill it because he becomes, you know, what he was trying to, or, you know, he becomes, you know, what he was, what he was imagining, right? where it's, is it just gonna be another cycle? Is it going to be that he'll find another character just like him or somebody else will find him that looks just like him? Uh, and this like the cycle that keeps repeating over and over again. I think that's also a question that should be asked is, is this 
this movie, you know, is heavy on repetition. There's a lot of things that happen over and over again. These characters go through the motions so often, like with the character, like with the introduction of Adam, it does beg the question, if that's the case, if this is the case where Anthony and Adam enter each other's lives, um, Anthony tries to take control of his life and dies because of it, and Adam then becomes Anthony, is there going to be a third thing, a third person that's going to come into this mix and just start the cycle all over again. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, it's, I don't think the movie comes down on it either way, but I think that there still is a question, you know, is there, is this just a never ending cycle? Which if we're, again, if we're going down the, what you're thinking of, which is more of like an addiction problem, I would say that that's definitely on the table. I'd say that's definitely worth discussing or, you know, that's definitely, you know, what is going on here is it's just a never ending cycle, even though you think it's dead, it just yeah. keeps coming back. Yeah, there's definitely, there's definitely that possibility. There's definitely that specter at the end that if you justify it enough to yourself, you'll think you will overcome it, but then there'll always be something to pull you back in. Um, I will, I, some people will probably contest that there's a radio announcement we hear at the end that could be read once again, literally or figuratively. I think this radio announcement of the car crash where it was just the car crash. And I think it says something like just these two people died. I think Denis does something very interesting here. First of all, it's a radio announcement and mm -hmm. it's not the news on the TV. If it was the news on the TV, that would be pretty definitive. But choosing to make it a radio announcement, we have no images of what car crash they're even talking about. Once again, I think this is something I love that Denis does is he will have characters or just lines of dialogue or just things written in the script. And then we will read them a certain way. Like when I first saw this movie, as you brought up earlier, Alan, the scene where one of the guys goes to see his mom. I always took that as Adam going to see his mom. But then when she says, oh, well, you're quit being a third rate actor. And then I thought, oh, well, this is confusing. Well, I'm just saying I'm I'm the one reading into it that way. The script never definitively makes mm -hmm. any kind of statement as such. It's us reading into it that way. So what I how I view the radio announcement, I view it as a half-hearted confession to his wife that he is done with that side of his life. The only problem is she's in the shower out of earshot and he's in his bedroom finding the key. So to me, that is this half-hearted confession where he's saying, hey, I'm, I'm kind of done with that. But at the same time, I may go back to it and we'll see because he's really not come clean to her about anything per se. Um, he's always making denials and he's always portraying himself as the good guy. Closest he's thing, the closest he's come to a, any kind of, um, you know, confession or apology was crying in the night. Uh, he gets up and he cries and then she mm -hmm. comes out to kind of comfort him, possibly forgive him and then reconcile their relationship. But Denis does such a fantastic job of putting throughout the movie these little things that could just throw a rock in our interpretation or completely divert it into something totally different. It's it's just masterfully done. Right. Yeah. And I think that's, again, like we've been talking about because of what, or like you were just saying, because of what he doesn't explain that allows for several different readings into this film which 
might be, might, I, get, like you, I think what you said at the very beginning, might be frustrating for some because there's no like definitive answer. The film never gives us a definitive answer on like basically everything in this in this movie. It's very much a film that just puts it on a page and like we've been talking about, kind of leads you to figure out your own conclusions as to what these elements mean. Speaking of elements, uh, are we ready to get into the discussion of the spiders? Yes. I can't wait. <laughs> All right. Go right ahead. I want to hear what you what you have to say about the spiders. I'm, I'm honestly very curious. So the scene preceding the giant spider at the very end, I, I do think that is something that's kind of important to just kind of bring up as an introductory thing. I see that key sequence as not necessarily a key to the dungeon. I know that the security guard guy said they changed the locks, that they sent out new keys. I think there's also a reading that key could go to his apartment. Um, he remembers it as a means to reintroduce himself back into his separate life. Um, he clearly, he could have sent that key to himself as an official piece of mail, something maybe his wife wouldn't open. Um, I think a lot of people probably read that as a key to the sex dungeon, which it very well may be, but I think it's also just a token as to just a more broader sense of that other side of his life. So that leads me into how I view the spiders. Okay. Anthony sees the spider as his wife, baby, and responsibility. In the beginning, the spider is firstly contained in a silver platter, showing the wife is trapped within his addiction. She is not first in their relationship, but rather lives in a diminished caged role with his sexual addiction stringing her along however he pleases. The spider is going to be overtaken, in fact, nearly crushed by the dominatrix, showing the very real possibility he will choose sexual debauchery over his pregnant wife and just destroy their relationship. As the story progresses, we see a giant spider walking over the city, signifying he is totally caught in the web of responsibility and addiction which he is struggling to disentangle himself from both. During a dream sequence, he sees the naked woman with a spider's head, which I see as the object of his desire, the naked woman plainly seen, but her head is the spider, aka the wife, causing major confusion and even revulsion. Realizing the ugly nature of his desire, along with the commingling of his wife with a sex object. At the end, when his wife turns into the spider, he can no longer ignore the fact of his wife's need for him, considering their reunion last night and the fact she is literally large with child. The spider is never menacing, but rather always the victim or docile. This giant spider is scared of Anthony due to the fact he is planning on leaving her again to return to his addiction, possibly for good. That is my entire philosophy of the spiders. I think you bring up a really interesting point uh, because tarantulas are not exactly, uh, they're not exactly, they may look scary, but in reality, they're not going to hurt you, right? In reality, those type of spiders, the tarantulas are ones that uh, are usually kept as pets. If you're going to keep a, if you're going to keep any kind of pet <laughs> spider, it's usually mm -hmm. a tarantula. Um it's a spider that looks scary on the outside, but in reality, it, it's not poisonous. It's not really going to hurt you at the end of the day, if, I, if my memory serves me correctly. So I think you have a very interesting point where, you know, 
women are very much attributed to the spiders in this film, right? There, I mean, there's a scene where a woman's walking on the ceiling and she has a spider as a head, right? It's very clear, and also at the very end where um, when Mary walks in the bedroom and then there's a giant spider in the bedroom, right? So it's very clear that women are very much attributed to spiders in some kind of fashion. But they're ones that, as well, like I've been saying, since they're more of a tarantula type, they're not necessarily going to be one that, uh, it's not necessarily going to be one that's going to hurt you. It's like you said, they are either, either docile or they are about to be killed or they're about to be harmed in mm -hmm. some way, right? So I, in my mind, if we attribute to, if you attribute that element um, where it's something that looks scary, but in reality is not going to hurt uh, to the women in this film, I know that traditionally spiders are seen as manipulators, right? Where if you see a spider and you see the web of the spider, it may look like, you know, it's, it may look like, um, it's, it's meant to, you know, kind of be leading you to, leading you into mm -hmm. a false sense yeah. of hope, right? Where you fall into this web and now you're wrapped into this web. Now you can't, now you're essentially dead at this point because, because of the physics of how spiders make their webs. So, I don't know what that all necessarily means. I think that that's all interest. I think that that's all what Vinny is going for, right? Where the spider is not necessarily anything that's, you know, threatening, but maybe Anthony or Adam thinks that that's threatening. I mean, we see the spider being delivered on a silver platter at the beginning and almost get crushed by a woman in a stiletto heel before it cuts away. We never really see the spider die or get crushed in that opening in the opening scene. Um, but it sure seems to insinuate that that's what it's going for. So to me, I think that the spiders, maybe the spiders, I don't know. I think that's <laughs> my thing. I, I think maybe it's just too ambiguous right now for me to pinpoint where exactly I stand with the spiders. Although I think that your theory is definitely a strong one. Um, and I, I, I just more yeah. or less been adding on to it. Uh, so those are some thoughts that I've had. I don't know where exactly I definitively stand on what the spiders mean currently, but nevertheless, they're very much an interesting and very important aspect to this film. Yeah, I, yeah, I agree. It's, it's almost the crux of the film. Um, and they're mm -hmm. not always literally spiders throughout the movie. There is a creeping spider plant in the background it, in his workplace. Um, there is the shattered glass from the car crash, which looks like a spider's web, which means that, which means right. there's a possibility that although he crushed that, the, that side of himself, it could have just fractured further and the web could have deepened even further. And then of course, there's more so the, you know, allegorical elements that he's, he's caught in a web. He is in a pickle because of his lies and all this stuff also definitely represents a fractured mind that the spider has fractured his mind. Right. He is being pulled between two different worlds. He's being pulled between the world of his wife and between the world of his own, you know, lustful desires. So that fracturing of the mind is very much like a web. Oftentimes people will um, use kind of a, a spider's web or other things to represent the mind and all of its different avenues and branches. So it does play on multiple levels. It took me a really long time actually to formulate those thoughts. I did have 
I did actually have one thought in the beginning um, when I was actually writing it out and I totally scrapped it. I didn't think it was right. So that ultimately is where I land um, on the spiders because I think most people see spiders as scary and menacing. They're usually kind of the bad guys. I think in some ways that's why there is a spider is Anthony sees his wife as the bad guy. He sees her as the one that's constantly you know, tying him towards domestic life. Now he has a child. She is the one increasingly, you know, pulling him into her web and taking away his identity. So he is forcing a bizarre new identity out into the open. And that's why at one point in the movie, he's very frustrated that Adam brought his wife into it. He said, you brought her into this. So that causes a whole nother slew of problems. Um, yeah, I, I will say though, Alan, you never forget the ending of this movie. I will say that when he calls to Helen yep. and she goes into the room and it's a giant spider. I, I was shocked. I like, it totally took me by surprise. It's one of the craziest endings. And I'm like, dang, this is going to take me forever to think about this now. I, I won't stop thinking about it. Yeah. It, it's, it's kind of funny because when the camera pans around and, you know, it displays that she's now become a spider. Uh, the spider, interestingly, acts very scared yeah. uh, when Adam turns the corner. It backs up into the corner as far as it can go. It's a giant, it's a humongous spider at this point, so it can't go far, but it it retreats and tries some kind of escape. It's clearly threatened by Adam, which I think is very interesting. I do think there's also something to be said that the spiders could just represent women in general, how there's kind of that old saying where you can't live with them, you can't live without them. And he seems to, no matter where he goes, mm -hmm. there's always that spider there. We see that giant spider just over the city. Um, also, the fact that spiders could be representing women and these women are um, objects of men to be abused. I mean, if I see a spider, I'm going to kill it. I'm going to kill it and I'm going to throw it away. And so oftentimes we could see that the spiders are just women to just be objects to be used and thrown away. I mean, they do have their uses in some capacities, but also in the beginning, if spiders are women, then that woman crushing the spider is showing um, how women are, you know, women are, I guess, hurting each other in ways. They're allowing each other to be hurt either by men or that woman in the beginning is pulling Anthony away from his wife. Um, she is now so more so the object of his desire than she is. So I think there is something to be said as well that the spiders are women and, you know, they're being used by men and maybe they're not necessarily looking out for each other. Uh, because definitely at the end, you're right. I think that's probably the most intriguing aspect of all is the spider um, is scared of him and backs up into the corner. The spider is either trying to get away from him or I read it more so as the spider is so apprehensive and worried. It's just, that's just its defense mechanism is apprehension. And that's the last shot of the movie is his, you know, disconcerted face. How is he going to deal with that? It has become such a problem that it's a giant spider now and he can't ignore it. It's that big of a problem now. Exactly. Yeah. You know, as far as some of the technical aspects in this movie goes, I love this score. I mean, to me, 
It's a very Hitchcockian score at times, but it also feels like very, um, very kind of a orchestral classical operatic music at times. Just, just incredible. Um, Alan, you know about instruments more than me. Is this a, is this an oboe or a piccolo, um, being played or is it both? Maybe it's both. Uh, at which, at which part? I don't know. I think, um, it's the primary instrument, um, kind of used in the score. I just, I don't know if that's what a, the sound an oboe or a piccolo makes, but it doesn't really matter. I just couldn't tell. I can tell. I can tell right now it's not a piccolo. A piccolo is going okay. to be very high. It could be an oboe. Um, it could be an oboe. It almost sounds like a clarinet to me. Oh, okay. Uh, personally, an oboe is going to be a little bit lower than a clarinet will. Maybe it's a bit bass clarinet. I don't exactly know. It does sound like a clarinet to me. I mean, uh, I I don't yeah. know. That's just my guess. At least. But what do you think of the score overall? Yeah, I think it's a very, like you said, very Hitchcockian. It's a very interesting, weird kind of abstract score, but that's like also the point. Uh, it's kind of stripped down too. Uh, it's there's not a whole lot of meat mm -hmm. to it, but like that's you know what kind of what it's going for. That's what makes it kind of effective is that there's not much to it, and it definitely does help add to that atmosphere. It's not one that I think I would listen to outside of the film necessarily on its own. Um, it's not nothing like that, but it is it's still by far as the film, it still by far fits the film and definitely sets the mood, um, correctly, I would say. Yeah. I also really like the yellow tint of the movie. I know they did, uh, really try and get that right. That came from Denise seeing mm -hmm. pictures of a sandstorm and how there just was this yellow kind of haze that just hung in the air. And then he applied that to Toronto giving it, I mean, Toronto doesn't usually look like this, but there is just this yellow haze, which just really puts this really kind of this, this pal over the film. It's just very dark and um, very depressing almost. Um, mm. But uh, the lighting does change once Anthony and the wife, once um, Helen and the baby and all of that come into the picture, their apartment is normally very bright, right. a lot of bright colors, whereas everything else is pretty much doom and gloom. So they do play a lot with color. I think they do a very good job with the lighting and color in this movie. Yeah, this is like you mentioned, given how yellow it is, it's also kind of a very like depressing color palette because for a good number of these scenes, it's very yellow, uh, especially with the character of Adam. Uh like you mentioned, when we do get into the character of of Anthony and Helen, it changes a little bit. It doesn't look as dark. It's not as you know dreary. It's a bit more colorful. As an overall sense, though, the color of this film definitely is on the yellow side. Definitely is meant to be something that's very kind of oppressive. It feels like the cinematography mm -hmm. here is too is amazing. I mean, I it's nothing really new with uh, with with Denis. His films have always looked amazing. Um, but th this again, it. It feels this is a very well, very well shot film all the way through. It's it, there are a lot of times with the character or the character thoughts into the camera moves with it feels like it's very deliberate. Oh, yeah. Like, for example, there's a scene when um, Mary is walking out of the apartment. She's walking away, going to work. And we follow Anthony as he follows her. He first passes her on the road mm -hmm. as she's crossing it on his motorcycle and then the camera continues to follow continues to follow her tracks her down the sidewalk gets in front of her and we see anthony had parked his bike in the background um and so in those scenes where like blocking is such an interesting idea such an interesting thing to that scene all the way throughout this movie this cinematography is amazing still 
again, nothing new for Denis. It's kind of standard at this point that his films are just going to look good. There is great tension to that scene where he's following her and that really does kind of raise your blood pressure until he just drives on after she crosses the road. But then he stops, gets on the bus, and he's essentially mm -hmm. stalking her. It's a fantastic way to create tension in that scene. But as her cinematography goes, um, Nicholas Bolduck, this is the first and last time as of this recording that he has worked with Denis. So I would really love to see him team up in the future someday. I, I am hoping Denis will go back to more of an indie film like this. This seems to so far be the yeah. last of his indie films. Everything else has been fairly, you know, epic in scope. Um, honestly, Alan, the cinematography in this is just as good, if not better, than what Roger Deakins did with Prisoners. Now, the jury's still out if this is the best cinematography. I, I'm pretty sure Blade Runner 2049 is going to win, from my recollection. I'm going to revisit it. But um, cinematography here is just great. And um, and the way they even filmed, filmed these sequences was really interesting as well. We've talked before, like on Back to the Future Part 2, about how they filmed all those different Michael J. Foxes in the scenes. Um, it seemed to be somewhat similar, but the technology is just vastly improved. Most times, Jake Gyllenhaal was just acting by himself, correct? Yeah, I think that for the most part, they would do a scene and then film it again. Um, but with Jake as the other character, I remember where they used like a tennis ball <laughs> for where you get they could track his eyes correctly. Um, but they use, yeah, you mentioned Back to the Future too. They use somewhat similar technology where they have like the camera on this machine that would replicate the same movement for both scenes, so they can put those two characters together on the same in the same environment. Uh, same kind of technology here, but of course, like you mentioned, a lot more modern um, because back in Back to the Future 2 days, it was a pain to get that same thing happening. And they somehow did it with three versions of Michael J. Fox yep. in one scene. Um, this is a bit more simple, but it's the same similar technology, of course, just more modernized. It's interesting how they did it. Uh, it very much, especially when it looks... I don't know how they did it when it comes to when Anthony pushes Adam against the fridge. I like he touches his, his chest and pushes him against the fridge. Mm -hmm. I don't know how they did that. Yeah, uh, that's a mystery to me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm I'm glad it's not quite like uh, Bill and Ted's bogus journey where they just kind of split the film and oh, yeah. just kind yeah. of cobbled it together there. Uh, it's really well done. And like once I said already, Jake Gyllenhaal does bring nuance to his performance there is discernible differences in how these two characters act. And I think that I, I just love that in movies where characters, it's the same actor, but at a certain point I get so engrossed in the film, I believe they are two different people. There is two different people mm -hmm. yelling at each other on screen. It's, it's very well done. And honestly, it's a shame this movie got nominated for no Oscars, nothing for Hall, nothing for Denis, yeah. cinematography, production, once again, totally Denise, totally snubbed. It's so frustrating. Well, the last thing that I have to talk about is actually the very, very end of the film. If you thought the spider was the end, well, you would be wrong. Actually, the very end of the film are shots of Toronto and a somewhat upbeat song. 
But if you listen to the lyrics and put them into context with the images on screen, you realize there's a little bit more of a deeper meaning to it that I totally ignored because usually when credits roll, I check out, but this, this one listeners don't check mm. out. I did write down some of the lyrics. So some of the lyrics goes, she's just a girl whose memory will go away with time. I can't seem to tear her kisses away from the night facing the night without you. So read that how you will, whether I read that as, you know, talking about his wife, possibly talking about Mary, his girlfriend, talking about, you know, how, you know, these women play a role in his life. And then, of course, these shots of the city, you know, imply losing identity in a crowded world is a very kind of strange thing, but it is something that is very true. You know, once you're a lone individual, you know, crowded into a large area, there's so many people around you, yet there is the potential for you to feel lonely. And what kind of an identity are you going to have? Which draws us back to the very beginning of the film, where he seemingly has chosen the most times we've seen him together with anybody outside of his students are these men all packed in a very dark underside of possibly the city or possibly his mind as um, the poster of the movie. There's a poster of Hall, and the city is his mind and then the spider is on top of the city. It's a fantastic poster. Yeah, I I'm looking at the lyrics now for this song called After the Lights Go Out by the Walker Brothers. It's what the name is what the song is called. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it definitely seems to insinuate, the lyrics seem to insinuate um, a guy who's lost uh, his girlfriend or his or his wife or some kind of partner that he had, uh, lost them while still loving them and is lamenting that they are now gone. Mm -hmm. um, so pretty much similar to what you were already saying, Corbin. That seems to be the, uh, the state of the song. Yeah, and you could take that as he's lost his wife. Maybe she left him you know, and now he has to live with that. I mean, in some ways, I do think that is what's depicted in the movie is he's not getting a response from his wife. He just sees the giant spider. His wife has, you know, literally disappeared. She is no longer there. She's just that giant spider. So, yeah, I'm glad I'm glad I had mm -hmm. the um, I think I had the subtitles on because otherwise I would have just disregarded the song. But they're is there is a reason Denis chose that song. So I'm like, this song doesn't fit with the mood of this movie at all. It doesn't <laughs> fit with the mood of that last scene. Well, come to realize there is a little bit more than meets the eye. So it's it's good. Well done, Denis, putting that song there. Well, Alan, I'm very, very curious. What is your rating and recommendation for Enemy? Enemy is a very interesting yet very ambiguous Denis film. I mean, it's it. This has Denis written all over it. So I mean, it's not necessarily anything outside of the style that he's already kind of made up for himself. I think at times maybe it gets a little bit too ambiguous, where there just isn't enough to draw enough of a conclusion. But that's not that big of a deal to me. I like the fact that it is open ended. I like the fact that it is something that only the real answer is whatever you interpret it as. That's kind of what Denis was going for, it feels like. And I feel like he succeeded. It's a film that is as frustrating to think about as it is intriguing to watch because it's a movie that 
anything can have an infinite number of reasons for why it happens, it feels like. And that just makes it a lot more fun to sit down and theorize about it. I wish I had an answer for everything in this film, but I just simply don't. Uh, but at the same time, those are the kinds of films that I love where the, the film feels very incomplete to me because I haven't fully figured it out yet. And I want to go back and watch it again to hopefully figure it out in the future. So I think this is very well done. I think this is a movie that for all of the weird, some kind of, we've noted this in the background, the scores are kind of low for Denis in this one. Not bad, but comparatively to his other films, it's rather low. I think it's interesting, but I think it's mostly the fact that not too many people seem to take the time to understand it. Uh, so I would love to return. I'm, I can't wait to return, return to this and watch it again and uh, find out more about it. I'm gonna give it eight out of 10, high recommend from me. It's definitely one that uh, really shows how great of a filmmaker Denny is, even when it comes to something like this, where the answer is not quite that simple. Enemy is one of, if not the most haunting films I've seen and in all the right ways. It's not dark simply to be disturbing. Rather, Denis shows us just enough to completely unsettle us, ultimately facing us with the question we must all grapple with. Gyllenhaal does a masterful job playing two different personas. Sarah Gadden is such a joy to witness as usual, and I can't give enough praise to the crew. Javier Goulan, who adapted Jose Saramago's book, Nicholas Bolduc's yellowy, hazy, lucid cinematography, Patrice Vermette's production design, and Danny Bensi and Sonder Jurion's tragic operatic composition. Together, they all create a grounded yet surreal world that, this may sound strange, but I love to live in. While Denis' adaption is disturbing, it doesn't make you feel bad like so many other A24 films that I've seen. <laughs> and if it does make you feel bad, that's a good thing. It's challenging. Enemy makes you think about the enemy within yourself. This truly is one of Denis' best films and one of my favorites. Enemy receives 10 stars out of 10 with my highest recommendation. When was our last 10? I feel like we, have, we don't give too many of those out. Okay, so my last 10 was actually Incendies. Um, your I last- I that one a nine. You gave Incendies a nine. Last movie you gave a 10 to was 12 Angry Men. Same as same as last time, I think. Okay, so that was the beginning of the year. Yeah, you, you haven't given a 10 in a while. It's true. Nothing has been that good yet. Nothing has been that good quite yet. Well, Alan, it sounds like we already both own the Blu-ray, correct? Correct, yeah. I actually, I, I bought it because I knew we were going to review it, but I'd already seen it with you. I need to watch it again anyways. So I would have purchased it even if I didn't have it. Yeah, I picked it up for this review. I'm really happy to add this to my collection. I've, I've been wanting to pick this one up for years, ever since I saw it. Mm -hmm. Well, Alan, what other recommendations do you have for our listeners that they check out after Enemy? So I have two recommendations. Um, Us, which is a Jordan Peele movie. I, I think I, I've recommend this, recommended this one a couple of times in the past. I think you have too. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, this one deals with uh, the doppelganger, but instead of with one person is with the entire family. Um, very interesting uh, horror movie by Jordan Peele after he did uh, Get Out. Um, I think it's kind of interesting. My second one is going to be a little bit different. 
Uh, it's kind of ab- it's kind of the same way here. It's somewhat of an abstract movie. There's you know kind of hard to pinpoint what exactly the movie's about without digging too deep into it and doing a whole analysis on it. Under the Skin with Scarlett Johansson. I think it released the same year as this one did. Uh, I know it's also an A24 film. Very interesting movie. Um, also, it's quite a bit of nudity in it, but still, to me, very, very interesting. Uh, maybe someday we can we can review that, Corbin. I'd love to know what your thoughts are on it, but those are my two recommendations. Yes, I'm actually going to be recommending Us as well. Um, and I have seen Under the Skin. I'm going to save my rating and recommendation for if we ever review that movie, but I can see why you <laughs> recommended it. Definitely some similar vibes. Um, I'm going to be recommending Lars von Trier's Melancholia, which I brought up either during the guide or this. Um, kind of some similar vibes, I think, in Melancholia, but maybe from a female perspective. I'm going to be recommending Christopher Nolan's The Prestige, uh, which mm. yeah, I'm not going to say anything. You gotta you gotta watch that. Uh, we have reviewed it, and I'm going to be recommending Alex Garland's Annihilation, which uh, also has some oh interesting also has some weird doppelganger stuff in it. Uh, I'm not going to say anything. Um, I know Alan and I have some very different thoughts on Annihilation, which. That's another one I'd love for us to review and talk through that film as well yeah. because uh, there's a lot to unpack in that. So now now I want to go watch Annihilation again. Oh, so, so interesting. So Denise's next film would be Sicario. It would come out a little over two and a half years later. Now, that's not like 100% accurate to say that because Enemy, like I said, was filmed before Prisoners, so technically Denis, um, once Prisoners came out, Denis began working on, or maybe even before it, I don't know. He began working on um, Sicario, so he'd been, he'd had plenty of, plenty of time, plenty of years to um, start working on that movie. I've only seen it once. I'm very curious to return to that movie. I've seen it a couple of times. I watched it somewhat recently. Um, I remember my most recent viewing, I was very much enthralled with it. I was very engaged. Um, it had to be pretty good for the whole runtime. So I'm excited to go back to it because I remember being very, I remember liking it a ton last time I watched it. Well, Alan, thanks for joining me. Sure thing. Listeners, the question after the show is, what would you do if you found out you had a doppelganger? Email us your answer at silverscreenguide95 at gmail.com and you may get your answer read at the end of next week's show. Well, listeners, we will see you next week with Sicario. Hey listeners, it's Corbin. Don't forget to check out the exciting links in the description below that will connect you with more great movie reviews for your listening pleasure and our YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter page. And of course, our official website where you can read great articles and sign up for our free weekly newsletter. Also, 
If you want exclusive bonus content such as extra movie reviews, movie commentaries, and our thoughts on the latest movie news and trailers, plus more, then check out our Patreon page. It's a great way to help keep this show free, and it gives you great content that's yours to keep. All of that and more is found in the description below. Don't forget to subscribe whether you're on YouTube, Apple, Google, or Stitcher, or your favorite podcast service. And while you're at it, please leave us a five-star review so other movie lovers can more easily find our podcast. We love talking about movies, and we love talking about them with you. So don't forget to share with your friends and family, and we'll see you next week, listeners. The Silver Screen Guide podcast is edited and produced by Alan and Corbin. Intro and outro music is created by Thomas Rankin. The thoughts and opinions herein expressed are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent those held by Silver Screen Guide. Silver Screen Guide is not affiliated with any company or individual involved with the creation of this movie or TV show. No portion of the podcast may be used without express written permission from Silver Screen Guide. It is on Blu-ray also. It is available for you to check out. Um, I think Alan's looking into it right now. I'm looking at it right. It's on Hulu. Okay, there you go. And maybe on Prime with a Showtime subscription. Do you think it's on Hulu with a Showtime subscription? Uh, on So it's on, you can watch it on, on Hulu if you have a subscription to Hulu, but it's also on Prime if you have a subscription to Showtime. I'm thinking it's on Showtime, but you can watch it on Hulu if you subscribe to Showtime. Think it no, so on Hulu you can watch it. No, with as long so long as you have a Hulu subscription. On Amazon Prime you can watch it, but only if you have a Showtime subscription. Hmm. Okay. And you can also watch it on Showtime. That seems weird. It would be like on two, two different platforms. I don't know. But it it is on Hulu. So you, if you have a Hulu subscription, you can watch it. You can watch it there. Okay. I did just pull up Hulu though. It says watch with Showtime add on. I click it. It says, sorry about your subscription Wait. doesn't include this movie. Oh, are you serious? Yeah, they gyp- They tricked us. They gypped us. Ah, man. <laughs> Dad comment. All right. Let me re-say what I said. <laughs> I can tell you, I can tell right now it's not a piccolo. A piccolo is going okay. to be very high on the register. That's what that sounds like. It could be like a lower clarinet, maybe like a bass clarinet. I don't exactly know, but it kind of sounds like a lower. It's not quite as low as an oboe. (laughs) Sounds yeah. It sounds like we're playing catch. Here it comes again. Oh no. Uh. (laughs) And one of my favorites, Denny receives Denny. Denny, he gets the stars this time. He gets all the stars. Oh man, this is going to be fun to edit. An hour and a half.